been asked recently if I would raise the question and answer concerning what is the work of the church? What is the role of the New Testament church? In other words, what's our function? And should the church get involved in community matters? And what we mean by that is should the church get involved in such things as feeding the hungry? And should it be a work of the church to have soup kitchens, as some churches are involved in? Should the church be involved in like housing the homeless, like providing rent? We get phone calls frequently from people wanting to know if we help pay the rent and could we provide rent for them. And there are churches who do that. Is that what the church is to do? Should we educate the young? There have been churches that have established colleges. There are colleges that exist because of church support. And that is for the education of the, of the young. Is that what the church is to be involved in? Should it be involved in the entertainment of the board? Meaning that we provide recreation or sports. Some churches do that. Is that the role of the church? And is it the role of the church to doctor the sick? There are churches that have built hospitals. Uh, years past, you would have heard of that more than you do now. But for example, uh, St. Thomas Hospital, the old St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville was a Catholic church, a Catholic um, hospital supported by the Catholic Church. Baptist Hospital is obviously operated by the Baptist Church. Methodist Hospital was operated by the Methodist Church. Those were church-sponsored and supported hospitals. And is the church to provide anything that might be labeled as good? The concept is that here is something that's good for the community, it's good for people, it's good for society, therefore the church should provide that for them at the church expense. So let's raise the question, what is the work of the church? Four points I want us to consider in that, so here's, let's begin with this. Let's talk about the work determined. And what we mean by that, how do we determine what the work of the church is? Well, first of all, the work of the church must be authorized in the scriptures. It must be authorized. Let's look at some passages we know well. But let's start with Colossians 3 and in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever we do in word, that is in teaching, or deed in practice, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now what does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? We won't turn there because of interest of time, but Acts 4 and in verse 7 shows that to do something in the name of another is by their authority. By what power or by what authority have you done this? So... To do something in the name of Christ is by his power or by his authority. Whatever we do, we're to do all in the authority or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, where is the work authorized? In 2 John verse 9, we must abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. The text says, Whoever, whosoever goeth onward and abides not in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. But the one who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So if we're going to have fellowship with God and continued fellowship with God, we must abide within the confines of the doctrine of Christ. So how do we determine what the work of the church is? First of all, it must be authorized. But let's go further. 
It must be a work of the church and not the individual. We're trying to determine what the church as a collectivity is to do. It must be a work of the church and not the work of an individual. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the Bible shows there is a difference in the individual and the church. There's a big difference in the individual and the church and their role and their function. So let's open to some simple New Testament passages and notice there is a distinction in the individual and the church. For example, 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 12. What does it say? For as the body is one, it has many members. That is, the body or the church has many members, but all the members of the one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. The body is the church, according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So the body, the text says, is many members. It's a plurality of members. That's what the body or the church is. Well, let's go to another text. Verse 14 of chapter 12 says, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So the individual would be one member. The church would be many members. How do I know that? Verse 14 says, The body is not one member. The church is not made up of one member, but of a plurality of members. So there's a distinction in the individual and the church. Let's go to verse 27 of the same context. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So we have a body, a local church, but you are members individually. So individually you're a member of the body, but the member within itself doesn't constitute the body. There's a distinction in the member and many members are the individual and the church. Let's go even further. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 16. This passage makes it as clear as any, and not only the distinction in the individual and the church, but the distinction in the role of the individual and the role of the church. This is talking about benevolence. And this text says in verse 16, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That is, here is the individual who has a widow who is in need. They take care of that. And do not let the church be burdened or charged, the King James says, that it may relieve those who are really widows or widows indeed. So here is the individual who has responsibility and that responsibility does not rest on the shoulders of the church. There is a difference in the role of the individual and the church. Let's go again to Matthew chapter 18. You are familiar with this text where there is an, a problem or a conflict between Christians. And the text says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now if that doesn't work, if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. Now, when the individual was dealing with this and other individuals, the church was not yet involved. Now you tell it to the church, but if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be like to you a heathen and a tax collector. Now, what have I learned from that? There is a difference in the individual and the church. If you have a problem, you go and deal with that with you and him alone. You haven't engaged the church yet. The church doesn't come to play until a little bit later. So just because you've involved someone else... That doesn't constitute the collectivity yet. In fact, let's make a little better diagram of that same text. And there can be an individual, there can be individuals, and yet that this still doesn't constitute the church. Let's go through that same text again. 
Same verses, we've just spread it out over three boxes now. What do we see? If a man have, if a brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. In other words, I as an individual have gone and engaged them concerning their sin. But if he refuses to hear them, then take with you one or two more that at the mouth of two or three witnesses may be established. Every word may be established. We still haven't involved the church as a collectivity yet. How do I know? Because if he refuses to hear them, then you tell it to the church. So there's a difference in the individual and the church, and there's even a difference in individuals getting together and that constituting the church. That's all we're trying to show. Now let's show an area wherein there may be a distinction. There may be a distinction in the individual and the church and how their money is gained. The individual has every right, for example, to buy and to sell to get gain. Like what James 4 and verse 13 talks about. You go into a city and you continue there a year and you buy and you sell and you get gain. That is, you might buy something and you try to make a profit on that and you make a profit off of selling it. You buy something for this amount and you sell it for a higher amount and now you've made some profit. And that's how you make your income. But the church is never authorized to do that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the church gains its money by free will contribution by everyone laying by in store 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. So they differ in how they may get their money. That's not the only way in which the individual and the church may differ. They differ in name. When it comes to the individual, the individual would be called a Christian. The disciples, plural, were called Christians. One of those would be a disciple. Acts eleven twenty six. 26. 1 Peter four sixteen. if any man, individual, suffer as a Christian... So the term Christian applied to the individual. Never was that applied to a church. So it was a church that is a Christian. You as an individual is a, uh, uh, would be a Christian. But as a congregation or as a collectivity, it would be referred to as the church of God, which is at Corinth. Or plurality of those would be called churches of Christ, like in Romans 16 and in verse 16. All right, let's go a little bit further. We've shown there is a difference in the individual and the church. So may I suggest to you that to find a passage that assigns a work to an individual does not authorize the church. Here's what we mean by that. Someone said, well, here, here's a good work. Here's something that needs to be done. And here is a passage that says this is to be fulfilled and this work is to be done. Well, who is that passage talking to? The context will tell me, does that apply to the individual? Does it apply to the church as a collectivity? So just because I can find a responsibility doesn't mean that's the church's responsibility. There's a difference in the individual and the church. So first, it must be authorized. It must be a work of the church and not the individual. But let's go a third point. Let's consider that it must be more than a good work. Here is the idea. The idea that if something is good and we deem it to be good, the church can do it. One man said a number of years ago that Anything that is good, the church can fund. If it's good to have highways for us to travel upon, making our travel much easier, then the church could fund the building of highways. And so churches could contribute to the building of highways because that's good. Anything that's good, the church can involve itself in. But let's consider 2 Timothy 3.16. In order for something to be labeled as good, it must first be found in the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, you are familiar, where the text says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable 
for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man may be thoroughly equipped and furnished unto every good work. Now recognize that's talking about the individual, but here's the point. How do I determine something is good? The scriptures furnish me to what is good. It tells me what is good. Second John 9, if it's not found within the doctrine of Christ, then it's not something God would have us to do. It cannot be labeled as good for the church to do unless we find first Bible authority. So when it raises the question, what is the work of the church? We need to focus on how the work is to be determined. First, it must be authorized. It must be the work of the church and not just something we've labeled as being good. All right, let's go secondly. We're still talking about the work. Let's talk about the work being revealed. What we mean by that is the work of the church has been revealed in the scriptures. So since it first must be authorized, let's open the scriptures and see what the scriptures label as being a work of the church. Let's start with this in 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 15. The work of evangelism is a work of the church. In fact, it is the primary work of the local church. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said that you may know, speaking to Timothy, how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is pictured here as being the pillar or the support of truth. It is not the originator of truth. Truth doesn't come from the church. It decides what is truth. We saw in 1 Corinthians 2, that comes from the revelation of God. Now that it's been revealed... It is the role of the church to be the disseminator of truth. That is, it distributes the truth. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. Now when we open our New Testament, what we may find is in the New Testament times, the church would often send preachers out to preach. They did that at the church at Antioch. In fact, there was the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Here's the church. What's their role of trying to send someone to preach? You go over to Antioch and do some preaching. And he did. Acts eleven twenty two. The church at Antioch sent out a number of men to go preach the gospel. Paul and Silas were sent out. Paul and Barnabas were sent out to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, continuing on through the rest of the book, for that matter. And so they would send preachers out to preach. There are times when money would be sent to preachers to support them in the preaching of the gospel. In fact, we just heard a number of reports from men that we are supporting. We're interested in that because the role of the church is to support the preaching of the gospel. The church at Philippi sent once and again unto Paul's necessity to support him in the preaching of the gospel. We might add another passage, 2 Corinthians 11 and in verse 8, Paul said, I robbed other churches, meaning I took from them, to do you service. That is, he took wages of other churches to do service to the church, which is at Corinth. But here's another work the church could do, because the scriptures reveal this, and that is, in Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 16, could be involved and should be involved in the work of edification. What is that? That has to do with building up spiritually those who are the people of God. That it may edify, speaking of the church, that it may edify itself in love. So the church is to edify itself. Now that might be done in a number of ways. That's done in preaching. We're involved in the work of edification right now because we're trying to build up one another in the faith. 
In fact, we do that during worship. When we were singing a moment ago, we're building up one another in the faith. That's part of the work of the church. Furthermore, that's involved in Bible classes. When we have a Bible class program, as we do on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and one on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we're trying to study the Bible, and we're trying to then build one another and encourage one another and build us up in the faith. That is, we become stronger in the faith. And that's why we can take money out of the church treasury and buy workbooks, provide a place that we might have Bible classes, because that's one of the works of the church. Here is a third area of work the church might be involved in, and that is the work of benevolence. We've already cited 1 Timothy 5 and in verse 16, If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be burdened that it, that is the church, may relieve those who are widows indeed. All right? Here's what I've learned from that. The church should be involved in the work of benevolence. But notice in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, the benevolence, the church as a collectivity was involved in, not the individual now, but the church as a collectivity out of its treasury was for those who were needy saints. Paul said, now concerning the collection for the saints at Jerusalem, I've given order to the churches of Galatia. Even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in store. Now, what I learned from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 is they were to put into the collection, and that was a collection for the needy saints. Notice, that was not for the world. There is no Bible authority for the church to take out of its treasury and just help people of the world, just anybody who might be in need. You might do that as an individual. There's no Bible authority for the church to do so. Let's add another principle. The church can take care of its own widows. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but let's go to Acts chapter 6. Here is a case in point. There was the daily distribution mentioned in Acts chapter 6 of the widows. That means that there were enough widows in the church there. The church was taking care of those daily needs, providing food, clothing, and shelter for those widows. There were some widows that were neglected in the process. So the apostles came together and asked the church to select seven men of honest report whom we may appoint over this business. And they chose those seven men and they distributed then the need to those who were needy saints. So here was a church taking care of its own needy. So what kind of work could the church be involved in? What has been revealed in the scriptures? The work of evangelism, the work of edification, and the work of taking care of needy saints. Now there's not another work that's been revealed in the scriptures If so, we would ask, where would that passage be? Let's consider now a third principle. We know what the work determined, meaning how do we determine what the work is? We're going to go to the scriptures, what's authorized of God. Secondly, we see the work that has been revealed in the scriptures. Now let's talk about the work focused. What do we mean by that? What was the focus of the work? What was the focal point of the work? And may I suggest to you that the gospel message, since the church was to be involved in evangelism, the gospel message was a message of redemption. The gospel message was a message of redemption. The focus in the work of the church was that of spiritual matters. Consider that the focus was on the spiritual need of salvation. The gospel that was preached focuses on man's need. Notice in Mark 16, 15, and 16, 
Go teach every creature, go into all the world and preach every creature, the text says. Go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, Matthew's account. Mark says, go teach them and baptize them, or he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. All right, what I'm learning from both parallel accounts, and we're looking at a third parallel account in just a moment, is that the focal point was on the salvation of man and the remission of sins. In fact, Luke 24 47 says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name beginning at Jerusalem. Here's what I want us to see. The focus was on the spiritual need of salvation. Let's go further. Every sermon, without us reading each one of those, I cite Acts 2, Acts 13, but every gospel sermon scattered throughout the book of Acts focused on salvation. The first gospel sermon in Acts 2 focused on salvation. Acts 13, let's jump over a few sermons, and you find again, Israel has a Savior, Jesus. That was the message, and the focus of the message was salvation. The gospel message was one of salvation. This is the gospel by which you were saved, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. The Word gave emphasis and gives emphasis to the spiritual over the social. Now let's get this in John chapter 6. Do you remember the occasion in John 6 where Jesus had fed the 5,000? A crowd was following him. Jesus said, because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Notice verse 26. You seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. He then tells him, verse 27, don't labor for the food that perishes, but that which endures unto everlasting life. Don't get your mind focused on physical food. You need to be interested in spiritual food. And then he adds, notice at verse 63, my words, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, the message I'm preaching is spiritual in its nature. It's not a social gospel. It's not a social gospel at all. The gospel message was one of redemption. Now let's consider the fact the gospel does not address social needs. I'm not saying these things are never mentioned in the Bible, but that's not the focus of the gospel. Like what? Poverty. Poverty is not the focal point of the gospel so that when we take the gospel to someone that we've cured the problem of poverty. You don't find that anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. The focal point of the gospel is not hunger. So that when we take the gospel to people, they no longer have physical hunger. The focal point was not sickness or disease or social relationships or recreation or business essentials. That was not the focus of the gospel. You don't find the apostles saying, what we need to do is take the gospel to Corinth and we're going to fix then the problems of the business relationships and we're going to take it over here to Ephesus and we're going to fix the problems of disease and we're going to take the gospel over here to Thessalonica and we're going to fix the poverty issue. That was not the focus. So the work needs to be focused. And what was it focused on? The work was focused on spiritual matters. But let's consider now our fourth and final point. The work has shifted. What do we mean the work has shifted? The work has shifted among religions across the country. Even among some churches of Christ, it has shifted. So that the message has now become a social gospel. So let's consider some history here. The social gospel was born into denominationalism in the late 1800s. There's more history behind that. So we're kind of fast forwarding, catching up a little late when we get to the late 1800s. 
But let's start in the late 1800s. There was a problem of society that followed the Industrial Revolution. If you know a little bit about history, you know something about how things changed after the Industrial Revolution. There were problems in our society of crime. There were problems of poverty. There was inequality. There were problems of drunkenness. There was etc. and you keep on, prostitution. All kinds of immorality beginning to sprawl through the, the cities because the cities were building up. That followed the Industrial Revolution. There were many churches then sought to fix those social ills. Instead of just preaching a gospel message that saves the soul, churches were shifting their attention to address these problems. We have problems of poverty in our cities. We have problems of inequality. Crime is increasing. We want to see if we can fix those problems, and let's address those problems. I quote from Dr. David Edwin Harrell, Jr. You recognize Ed Harrell as being a member of the church, but he was noted around the world as a historian. And Brother Harrell said this, as a historian. He said in, 18, in the 1870s and 1880s, the leaders of the American society suddenly realized that they were faced with overwhelming social problems. The Industrial Revolution in this country raised problems in business and political ethics, employer-employee relationships, economic competition, and the nature of poverty and its remedy which shocked many American social philosophers out of the well-worn complacencies. No less serious was the social maladjustments connected with the unparalleled rise of high cities. Slums, drunkenness, prostitution, organized crime, juvenile delinquency, abject poverty, and other problems sprawling filthy cities were convincing realities, uh, convincing realities that demanded that something be done. Out of the setting came the social gospel movement. Religious leaders were not the first to delve into the social evils, but the late 1870s and the 1880s, increasing numbers of them from almost every denomination began to offer suggestions for the solution of the new American social dilemma. Now that's enough to establish what was going on in religion. Forget the, the, the New Testament church. But in religion what was going on was these churches are beginning to look at the social ills that followed the Industrial Revolution, and we think we can provide answers for that. Let's go a step further. That very concept crept into the Restoration Movement. Coming out of the 1880s, in the 1880s, was the Restoration Movement. That is, men who were coming out of denominationalism and trying to restore New Testament Christianity. That very spirit of the Restoration Movement had its influence of the social gospel. I quote from Harold again, where he talks about, and I put in quotation, conservative denominations got involved in the social gospel. By the 1880s, social gospelism had invaded the restoration movement. Leaders of the Disciples of Christ, you recognize that, that uh, group, still biblically conservative at this junction, such as Isaac Everett, Richard Bishop of Cincinnati, and Frederick Powers of Washington, D.C., participated in the earliest organized efforts of the social gospel leaders in the United States. Now, those names may not mean anything to you, but what that says is that it wasn't just going on in denominationalism, but some conservative-minded religious groups, like the Disciples of Christ, rather conservative at the moment, at that moment, got involved in the social gospel movement. But let's go even further. The American churches underwent a change after the Civil War. 
After the Civil War, there was a great change with reference to that. We quote here from John A. Battle, A Brief History of the Social Gospel. After the Civil War and Reconstruction of the South, American churches underwent great transformation. At the end of the Civil War, the mainline denominations were uniformly orthodox, but within 40 years, liberal theology and the social gospel made significant inroads. By the 1930s, the social gospel was, was the predominant theme in many sections of the church. These changes were brought about by several factors, including the demoralization caused by the war, increasing immigration of the people with different theology and practices, increasing participation and influence by laymen, especially wealthy businessmen, in church affairs, and developing progressive and socialistic movement in America, and the importation of the liberal biblical criticism and theology from Germany and England. An example of this change is seen in the observance of the Christian Sabbath, as he calls it. After the Civil War, Americans generally attended worship and, and closed their, closed their businesses on Sunday. Twenty years later, Chicago would be described as the Berlin in the morning and the Paris in the afternoon. Get the picture? What he's saying, things shifted after the war. And after the war, there began to be more emphasis on material things and social things than spiritual things in churches in general. That's the movement, the social gospel movement as a whole. Nearly all churches then began to develop social programs. The mission, you see, or the emphasis changed from the spiritual to the social. This was happening on churches all across the nation. All kinds of churches, all kinds of denominations. Here's some examples. Churches now are being involved in things they never involved in before the war. Like daycare, schools and colleges, building hospitals, Orphans' homes, nursing homes, soup kitchens, clothes closets, gyms, and youth ministries, all of those came in after the war. As people begin to realize there are social issues that we've got to address, churches all across the land got involved. There's now been a shift, you see, after the war. Again, I quote from Dr. Harold. He said, doctrinally conservative, many of the revivalist leaders of the late century readily adjusted the principles of the social gospel to their conservative theology. In other words, they didn't go as far as the denominations were going out here. Far from disdaining, Timothy Smith said, earthly affairs, the evangelists played a key role in the widespread attack upon slavery, poverty, and greed. They helped prepare the way both in theory and in practice for what would later become known as the social gospel. Now, I said all of that and I gave those quotations to justify making this point. Here was the big shift. After the Industrial Revolution, after the Civil War, where was the big shift? From the spiritual to the social. From man's spiritual needs to man's social needs. And when that shift came, then that bled over into the church. And that's when... The question then comes along, why not the church provide this for the young people? And why not the church provide education for the young? Why not the church provide recreation for entertainment? Why, not, why doesn't the church provide uh, housing for those who are poor? And so the church is to be involved in taking care of all the social needs, fi fi uh, fighting the problem of poverty, lack of education, whatever you name the social ill may be. So that's kind of a thumbnail description of the work of the church. We could do a whole series on that. 
But hopefully that addresses the question that has been asked about the shift that has taken place. What have we seen? We raise the question, what is the work of the church? We raise the question about the work being determined. We determine that by going to the Bible and Bible authority. Verse must be authorized, must be a work of the church and not the individual. The work was revealed in the New Testament. The work focused on spiritual matters. And then finally, we've seen the work shifted somewhere along the line. And the shift was from the spiritual to the social. And that was happening in the world. That happened in denominationalism. That bled into more conservative-minded churches. And consequently, we've had that battle even among churches of Christ because of that shift that has taken place. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism, that you might have the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing? <laughs>